Welcome to another edition of the Giblets Gazette. It's uh, wonderful to be with you. Um, had lots of great guests already so far. We've got an absolute cracker of a guest coming your way today. Hello, Julian Abbott. Uh, Ross Solly, good afternoon. Hello, good morning, good evening, wherever you may be listening. Hello, good to have you along once again. Yep, where we, this is the Giblets Gazette where we tackle some of the issues of the day and we also bring you some, some guests, some guests that are, that are making news around the place, but also Guests from a previous era, guests that uh, that we go back to and rem- reminisce about some of the great times. And uh, our guest today, well, Julian, can you believe it? Uh, it's happy 41st birthday to the band Wawani, believe it or not, 1982. One of the, one of the greatest names for a band in music ever, <laughs> yes. Wawani. Uh, we shall find out why it was Wawani very shortly. But from a much maligned decade of music, the 80s, which is really coming to the fore because if you take a tune down the digital rail radio dial these days, there's all sorts of 80s stations there. So there must be some sort of a, a market for it still, and it's still pretty popular. Well, yeah, people do. I mean, when you think about the 80s, people do uh, quick, quick to denigrate it. But then you look back and you look, that was, you know, Vintage U2, that was The Smiths, that was um, Depeche Mode, all sorts of bands, and Wawani, Julian, up there doing Australia proud, of course, Little known fact, Julian, that Wawani, and our guest will tell us if this is fact or fiction, Wawani was the first Australian band to have two songs in the top ten at the same time. Did you know that? Well, let's get that confirmed. Steve Williams, good afternoon to you. Good morning, good evening, good wherever you are. Hey, Ross. Hey, Julian. How are you going? Thanks for having me, fellas. Fact or fiction, Steve? That is actually a fact. We were... um yeah, apparently we were the first band to have two singles in the top ten at the same time. Like, what happened was Stimulation, which when we put it out, we didn't really think it was going to do that well. We figured it might, you know, sort of get into the top 40 and, and get our name uh, around the place. Now, we, we actually had more faith in the second single, I Could Make You Love Me, which kind of represented the band a lot more. Um now, Stimulation just went gangbusters, and, you know, it kind of got to the point where we were so sick of that song. Um, <laughs> I know, so it's quite weird now, but we were sick of it, and then we were like, oh, when is this song going to stop, you know, being at, like, top of the charts? We were, like, over it. So, so yeah, so Stimulation dropped to, I think, about number four or something. So um, we thought this is the time to release the second single, I Could Make You Love Me. So we did that, and... Um, you know, it, it immediately went sort of into the charts and did, you know, got up there sort of thing. But uh, to our annoyance, uh, stimulation went back up. So it was up to, like, back up to number two or something. And we were, this kind of sounds ridiculous now, but we were like, damn, you know, when is this song going to die? It's super annoying. I think also stimulation wasn't really indicative of the band. It was, because yeah. we had a pretty cool sort of band, but stimulation was very, you know, it's kind of very minimalist. It's pretty much just the bass riff and, yeah. and, uh, you know, so we, that's why we were so keen to get I Could Make You Love Me Out, which was kind of more representative of what we actually really sounded like. Um, but but have, you, have you grown to love the song, Steve, or not? Look, I do, obviously it's done so well for us, and it's the song that everyone knows. It's a bit of a double-edged sword, I think. It's like any band that has a big hit, uh, particularly with your first single. Um, you become known for that, and it's all people want to talk about, and it's all people want to hear, and it's obviously the song that gets played constantly. But... Um, you know, I, I think it's it, it did its thing for us. You know, it certainly opened the doors and, and you know, allowed us to get a, a, lot, a lot of people, you know, kind of into the band. So um, it wasn't really, like, for the last maybe year or so of the band playing live in the 80s, we actually stopped playing it. 
Well, and, and did that go well, down well with the crowd or not? Probably not. <laughs> probably not. But, you know, probably, bands, like, probably, at this point, we were so into our own thing, we were just like, oh, not, not that song again, you know what I mean? I think what also happened, like, it's probably different now because of, you know, the global village and all that, but, like, we had hits in Australia and then we went, um, I think like 87, 88, we went overseas for quite a while, but what, what had happened was the, the second album, which we were already kind of recording, hadn't come out yet. The first album had just come out overseas, so we had to then go, and, and you know, don't get me wrong, it was great to do it, but, but we were, we were then playing the old stuff, which we were kind of, you know, uh, we were really keen. I think, you know, bands sort of grow and evolve naturally and and you know it, you, you don't want to keep playing the same thing all the time you know but that's what we had to do unless you're the rolling stones that's a little different let's <laughs> do the super league it's a little different yeah. can i just ask you about stimulation so you're in the mid 80s here the biggest station in sydney in the mid 80s was 2sm owned by the catholic church was you was stimulation banned by some stations it wasn't banned, no, but we did have uh, quite a bit of resistance um, from, I guess, the old guard of sort of Oz Rock mentality that we were sort of these, you know, new kids that, you know, we, they, they sort of claimed our ability, I guess, in, in a sense. And I, I think also because, you know, it's not it's not so much now, but there was at that point, if you didn't sound like Cold Chisel and ACDC, both mm. of whom I like, by the way, um, you know, it was a little bit of a problem for the programmers, I guess. So they didn't really know what to do with us. But um, we got a lot of we got a lot of um, TV, you know, airplay, which which really helped. Um, the, the DJs were good to us in clubs. Some of the radio stations played it. Yeah, because I, I know with 2SM, see, Mondo Rocks, Come Said the Boy, Frankie Goes to Hollywood's Relax, they were both banned. And were they okay? because of the Catholic Church owning the station at the time. And um, I seem to recall that you might have had a problem because of the title of the song, Stimulation. Possibly. Look, it, there seems to be no sort of consistency with those kind of issues because, let's face it, you hear Roll Over, Lay Down on the radio. Yeah. And that's <laughs> yes, you do. Possibly the, the most blatant lyric, you know, you've ever heard, but they, they just miss things, I guess. Who, who knows? I think, yeah, yeah. I, I think Julian, in, in Steve's favour, was the, the DJs at the time were scratching their head, spending so long trying to work out what Wawa Ni meant that they forgot, yeah. <laughs> they forgot yeah. to look what stimulation was all. Tell us about Wawa Ni, Steve. How did that come about, that name? You know, it's funny because when Paul and I sort of, you know, we did some demos and stuff and we we didn't have a, like a band at this point. When we recorded the first album, it was the two of us pretty much. Um, so, you know, we got a record deal and stuff. So we, we still hadn't played a live gig and we were signed to CBS Records. So um, we were at this point called The Movement, <laughs> which is... <laughs> Which is unfortunate, right? So, um, because we were young and stupid, you know, like, whatever we'd say to any, they'd say, you know, what's the name of your group? And we'd say, oh, it's called The Movement. And, and everyone was like, oh, that's, you can't, you can't be called that. That's a terrible <laughs> name. But we were, we were like, what's wrong with that? We didn't, we didn't get it. We thought we were like, we were doing something quite different. So we thought we had like a movement and it also tied into the whole dance kind of, you know, thing, right? So, Eventually, you know, we, we realised that we can't be called the movement for obvious reasons. So we had a list of about, like, I don't know, five or six names. We wanted something that didn't mean anything, so had no preconceptions. You know, kind of like Scritty Politi, that, that kind of yeah, thing, yeah. right? So, um, we had about five or six names on a list, which we didn't really dig any of them. 
Um, and Paul and I were downstairs at the record company. They got a studio. Um, this is in Hargrave Street in Sydney. Hmm. We were down there doing some recordings and stuff. And then we get a phone call that they wanted us to come upstairs. So, um, to, to, to formalize the name because they wanted to start, you know, doing pre promo stuff for stimulation, which was about to come out sort of thing. Um, so on the way up the stairs, which was literally like three flights of stairs, we decided, you know, we had this list and we decided on well, one E. And, and did it mean anything to either of you at the time, or was it just? It didn't mean anything. It meant nothing whatsoever. Now, there's a funny story um, around the time that Dennis Hanlon, who's the infamous Sony guy that was in, you know, the media about a year or so yeah. ago because of the whole you know, issues that went on. Yeah. So he uh, he was the managing director when we were you know with the label, right? So um, apparently they they asked him in in an interview what Wawani meant, and he said it means hit bloody records. <laughs> <laughs> and he was right, and he was which was which was kind of typical Dennis, you know. Yeah. So you had this song which you didn't really like. You had a had a band name which didn't really mean anything, and suddenly yeah. Steve, a few years later, you you crack America, which. So many bands have tried to do, and they've come home with their tail between their legs, and and you know it's a tough market to crack. Somehow, somewhere, you guys hit the right chord and managed to get into that market. Yeah, look, we we were very lucky. I mean, we what happened is we had an Australian management company, but we weren't really that happy with them. So uh, we, this is kind of after we'd had the singles success. You know, the few singles had come out and stuff here. So this is probably in about '87. Um, you know, and we were touring and doing quite well. So our publisher, which is a guy called Chris Gilby, he said to us, oh, look, I've got we – we were sort of looking for a new manager, and a few people flew out to Australia to meet us. Like one of the guys was the guy that managed Fleetwood Mac, and there was another guy that managed Kenny Loggins. And then this guy, Simon Napier-Bell, came along. Um, Chris Gilby had – he was a friend of Chris Gilby. So Simon came to Australia to meet us. Um, we were actually on Hamilton Island playing, and I remember going out to dinner with Simon, and then he, you know, we went out to meet him and stuff. He's the most amazing guy. He's a really charming guy. And, you know, I sat down and was chatting to him, and I said, so who have you managed? And he said, oh, Mark Bolan. Now, mm. he managed, like, the Yardbirds, Japan, Wham, Mark Bolan, Jeff Beck, you know, all these incredible, yeah, people who I absolutely love. And, like, T-Rex was the first band I ever saw, and I'm a huge Mark Bolan fan, so I was immediately like, yeah, where do I sign? You know, so we, we, we signed with Simon, and then because of his international contacts, suddenly the whole, like, the whole game changed sort of a little bit. We were in Japan touring, and we did an, uh, pretty much a whole world tour, and then he, he locked us into the American thing. Um, we were already signed to Epic in America, but I guess what would happen normally with a lot of bands, you just sign and then they don't make you priority, but because we had Simon on board, um, you know, he could leverage the band into a situation, you know, where we did like Solid Gold and Top of the Pops, and, and you know, we played at the Roxy, and, and um, you know, we, we did quite a few gigs there. We did a lot of TV shows. We were there for a few months. So, you know, the song did pretty well. Um, Sugar Free, it was like num top five, I think, in some areas. It was like, like did really well, for instance, in Los Angeles. Um, and then it didn't do so well, like in maybe the, the southern rocking kind of states. They would have hated us. So, you know, it, it got to like maybe, I think, 34 nationally on the chart there, So which was, you know, reasonable. 
Um, what we really should have done is stayed there, but we ended up coming back to Australia and, and you know, we, we didn't kind of follow through. I mean, if you look at NXS, they spent years in America before they really did. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's all, it's all hearsay now, but, yeah, was, you know, we, we did pretty well. We, we, we got a little bit of a taste of success there. How hard how hard is it though when you you're coming out and you've had success in Australia you've sort of you've cracked the American market and you've got to keep coming up with new stuff what what is the drain on you as a band like that how does it affect you Well I think what happened with us is because the first record was super successful um which I have to say like Paul and I went in and we recorded 10 tracks um, in a six-week period, it wasn't really that sort of thought out, right? So we just did what we kind of felt was natural, and it was obviously quite successful. So once you get a success, once you're successful in that respect, like the record company then were like, for, for the Blush album, we recorded like 80 songs. It was ridiculous, right? So it spent we spent years recording, and they were like, the record company just wanted to hear stimulation. We want stimulation, stimulation, you know, and. You know, the band had sort of changed. This is what happens, right? So, you know, uh, and also I think the second record which we gave them was, was quite sort of weird. We were like really going through this Beatles phase. And um, so they actually rejected the record we gave them and they made us go in and record more songs and more songs. And then we ultimately came up with what was Blush. Um, I think the problem for us was it took so long. Like the first record came out in 86. Mm. And the second album didn't come out until 89. Now, that's a long time in the life of a pop group. Um, what they should have done is they should have released the second album like next year while the kids were still crazy, you know what I mean? So it's mm. all timing, I guess. But I think what because of the success of the first record, they kind of built it up so much into something, you know, rather than letting it just kind of happen, which is what really what happened with the first record. So the vagaries of the record companies, the way that they they push you and drive you, can change the philosophy of your band, can't it? Well, totally, because, it, you know, as I said, the first record, we pretty much went in there, um, recorded the, the, the album in six weeks, myself, Paul, and a guy called Jim Tague, um, and then, like, the second album, because it was done in a, numerous studios in, all around the world, like, over a period of years... It sort of became a little bit disjointed, and I remember, like, you know, for instance, having meetings with the record company about, like, the hi-hat pattern or something ridiculous, you know what I mean? Like, for instance, one, one of the songs, they, I think it was Can't Control Myself, they wanted us to go in and remix it because the claps weren't loud enough or something in the chorus, and we were like, you know, if we go in and remix this song, it's going to cost us, like, 10 grand or something, right? So we, we, we didn't, and then we went back in a week later and played the A&R guy the same song, and he's like, oh, that's so much better. <laughs> didn't even notice. Didn't even notice you hadn't changed anything. Yeah, because, because I think what happens with... When it's a kind of committee, it becomes, you know, like creativity by committee. Like, there's so many people that want to have their kind of influence on the product, you know, and I hate to call it a product because it, that's sort of what it is in that situation. Um, you know, that it's sort of lost a little bit of the spontaneity. I think it became so kind of thought out and we were meeting about things and, you know, it was like it became quite sort of painful after a while. I think that's why in like late 89 when we finished, we'd sort of had a gut full of dealing with CBS and the way they, you know, I mean, because it's a massive company and, 
you know, they, they're sort of overthinking everything. I think we were just like, yeah, we just wanted to do our thing, you know what I mean? Mm. We, we were just lucky that when we did that first record, it, it was the right thing, you know what I mean? So, so, <laughs> you was, mentioned, that, so was that... Sorry, Ross. To, sorry, Steve. Did, is that what led to the split then, the fallout with the record company, or had you all just had enough by that stage? What, what kind of happened was um, we were signed to a six-album deal right now. Because they took so long to release the second album, we were kind of looking at it thinking... Like we were, we were relatively young at this stage. We were like, we're going to be with this record company for like decades at this stage if they release an album every like three or four years, you know. Um, so we kind of just lost the initiative. The it, we lost inertia, and then Paul ended up going to America and doing some writing with people like Robbie Neville and and some other sort of people that put through MCA, our publishing company. So we just we never actually really split up. We just sort of started doing other things like. Around that time, I got asked to join James Freud's band, and I did some stuff with him. And like Paul was off in America, I was doing stuff with with James. Um, it just sort of fizzled out. We we never actually split up. We just stopped doing it. And then the record company decided we we, we want it. We sort of we want to get out of this deal. We can't give you another four albums. It's just just too difficult, right? So they just let us go, which we were happy with. And so the question I've got to ask, having had a few hits and all that sort of stuff. By the time you did go your separate ways unofficially, were you were you, were you wealthy? Were you well off, or or what was the situation? Not not wealthy from the records because the records cost so much to make. It's the problem in Australia if you if you have hit records, it's not really a big deal because you're not selling you know absolutely millions of albums and stuff. I mean the records the album went platinum and stuff. We did make pretty good money from the live band we were doing, and we used to sell a lot of merchandise, so we did pretty good financially out of that we also signed a merch deal in america um you know for a considerable amount of money that we all got a split of um because sugar free was in the top uh 40 um napier bell managed to get us this t-shirt agreement so we signed this deal got us huge check and then that was it <laughs> it was cool but the t-shirt thing i was listening to a thing the other day about um Frankie goes to Hollywood and how they were trying to promote their band and they yeah. came up with the idea of the T-shirt and the big T-shirt and messages on the T-shirts and things like that. That was like, it was really an early form of social media, wasn't it? It really was. You know, um, we used to sell absolutely truckloads of T-shirts. Like every gig we'd sell, you know, hundreds of T-shirts and the, the sort of economics of, of it was this, that, you know, you make a T-shirt, it costs like a dollar or something, you'd sell them for 20 bucks. And we were selling like three or four hundred at every gig, so you, you, you're making a lot of money out of that, right? But you know, on the other hand, the, the record cost, blush cost half a million dollars to record, um, and they sell it for like twenty bucks. You know? So it's not hard to sort of see which one is more profitable. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. You mentioned you mentioned Paul there. And I don't want to put a downer on this, but Paul Gray died a few years ago now. Yeah, five years ago. Myeloma. And that's only just recently been back in the news. The sports broadcaster in Victoria, Sandy Roberts, has got myeloma. Okay. What was the loss for the band, still even though you weren't together, for the group of people that were Wawani? Well, well, Paul and I had actually started working together again in 2014, we started doing, uh, you know, those empire shows where they have like 10 or so what they call heritage acts. Mm. Um, so Paul and I had been doing quite a lot of those, you know, and they're big shows. You're playing like to between five and 10,000 people generally. Um, 
we probably did only there twenty of those over the over the few years prior to his death. Um, you know, so we were still working, and we actually did a gig about maybe four or five months before he passed away. We we did a gig in Queensland with uh, with with Human League. We were supporting Human League, so that was our last ever show. Um, you know, obviously it was incredibly sad and, and tragic, and and to lose him as a musical partner was bad enough. But I think more so just as a guy, you know, because he was an incredible guy, really funny. He was one of the funniest people I ever met. Um, and him and I sort of had a bit of a wavelength thing going on where we just sort of got each other, you know. So in, in that way, the personal loss is really greater than the professional loss, I suppose. Mm. And, and 50, 50, what was he, 53, 54? Not very old, is it? Mm. It's very young, you know, and also Paul, Paul was a guy that he had a very clean living lifestyle his whole life. Like, he never really drank. He never did drugs. He always ate healthy. He he used to work out every day, you know, and then it's just a genetic lottery, I guess. He, he was just unlucky, you know. So, Steve, you're back on the road again. You're doing the songs yep. again. How does it feel? How do the songs stack up 40 years on? It's really great. Look, honestly, it's such a thrill to play them again. And, and the first couple of rehearsals, uh, I have to say, it was quite emotional to be playing these songs again because there's so many memories kind of rooted into these songs. Um, band's sounding great. Like, I've got Tim Watson from Taxi Ride singing. He's a remarkable singer. So, you know, it's really sounding good, and the songs stand up. They're still really fresh sounding. Um, I'm really excited to do this thing it's you know i mean look i've been getting asked by different promoters since paul passed away to reform the group and i'd always thought you know i can't do that it's just not right because paul was such a big part of it and then i thought um i was doing a gig in brisbane actually you know probably about eight months ago and the promoter said to me um what, what are you doing here? Why are you doing this? And I said, well, what do you mean? Uh, I'm here because I'm a guitarist. <laughs> it's a gig, you know. And he said, but why, why are you doing this and not Wawani? And I said, oh, because Paul isn't around anymore, so I can't really do Wawani. And he was like, you know, he was trying to sell me a whole bunch of dates. And I was like, no, 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 I can't, I can't do it. And then I kind of started thinking a little bit more about it. And I thought, you know, if I present it the way I am, like Steve Williams plays Wawani, it's a bit more palatable than if I went out as Wawani as such, you know what I mean? So we're not pretending to be Wawani. This is me playing the songs with a, with a new bunch of guys, you know. But I could, I, could, I could say to you, though, the old line, but Paul would have given you his blessing to do this, though, wouldn't he? I think he would have. Look, I think he would have because he, you know, I mean, we were both so passionate about the band and about the music, and I, I think it's it'd be a real shame, in a way, for it to just for those songs never to be played again, you know what I mean? Um, look, I play in a lot of other bands. I play in Matt Finish, and it's great fun. It's a really great band to be in. But I do miss playing the Wawani material, you know, so it's, this, is, this is going to be great fun. I'm really looking forward to it. And, and you'll definitely be playing Stimulation. Of course, yeah, we're doing Stimulation. When... Um, what happened with stimulation because we got kind of a, not sick of it, but we were yeah, like, we wanted yeah. to do something fresh to it. So the arrangement of the song kind of evolved over a period of years into this. We had three versions of stimulation that we used to play. Like we'd have stimulation, the single. We had a slightly longer version, which was, um, we used to call stimulation the mini series. And then, we, and then we had Stimulation the movie, which was like this longer version that was kind of mashed up with a few other things. So 
I'm doing that version now in this particular, you know, show. So we're doing the long extended version, which is really cool. And it takes it into other areas that it's a little heavier. Um, so I think, again, it could be a pleasant surprise for people. The first gig is August the 11th in Sydney. And then we've got August the 12th also in Sydney. Um, big music on the 11th and the Bridge Hotel Roselle on the 12th in Sydney. Um, I've then got Music Land in Melbourne um, on August the 25th and, and a gig in the country, the Hepburn Palais on September the 25th, I think, of 30th it is, yeah, and then we're doing Adelaide in November. So, you know, there's going to be more dates added, but we, we actually haven't started playing yet. Okay, so what sort of crowd do you think you're going to get? Do you think you're going to get your 20-year-olds from the 80s? Or a new I crowd? think it's going to be all the, all the kids that used to dig us, you know, which who we used to call the front rowers. Um, I think a lot of them will still be there. And, and, you know, I think anyone who's into, like, as you mentioned in the sort of intro, there's a big revival with the 80s thing going on, you know. So I think it's good time music. People, it, when they hear it, it takes them back to when they were young and carefree kind of thing. So I guess we'll have, we'll tap into that crowd. And, you know, I mean, look, the thing, why wouldn't always used to have a lot of musos at the gigs? Because we had, like, okay players in the band. So it was a combination of, like, young girls who liked the, 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 the pop stuff. And then we had a lot of, a lot of musos standing there with their arms folded, you know what I mean? So who, who knows? Maybe a bit of that, I suppose. And I got to, I got to ask: Have you got kids or anything, Steve? Yeah, I do have two kids. Yeah. Have they watched your videos from forty years of, ago? Of course, of course. My son and my daughter—they both, yeah, they both play instruments very well. Um, in fact, I was with Paul and I were doing the Febby Theatre in. Um, in Adelaide, this is probably about 10 years ago, and that's a beautiful old venue, and my son was with me, and my, he got on the on the mic at soundcheck and started going, yuppie <laughs> <laughs> But what, what did they make of the hair and the music and things like that? How old are they now? Uh, they're at, my daughter's 21 and my son's 18, so they love it. I mean, you know, it's kind of cool, and... You know, I, I, I think they, it's sort of special, I guess, for them because their, their dad was in this group that was, you know, reasonably successful. So, yeah, they dig it and they're both musos. My, my daughter plays a whole bunch of instruments very well. My son also plays numerous instruments. So, um, yeah, I mean, they, they did come. It was funny because Paul and I were playing the very first gig that we did back together in 2014 was this massive show in the Barossa Valley in South Australia and it was about seven or 8,000 people there and, when we went on, like I, I told them that my, my kids both went out the front to watch the, to watch this right now. We did like a short set and when we came, when I came off stage, my son came running up to me and he said, Dad, there were grannies with signs. Because <laughs> <laughs> there were girls with signs like we love Wawani and all that kind of stuff, right? But to my son who was like, I don't know, 10 or something at the time. He was like, Dad, there were grannies with signs. And it's so hilarious. It's like, that's, that's the name for the tour, you know, the grannies with signs tour. Look, it'll be fascinating to see how many of the old T-shirts come out at your first gig, Steve. It'll be, that's what you need to keep your eye open for. Uh, yeah, I think they're gonna be, they'll be certainly in tatters by this stage, I guess. Yeah, yeah. No, they've probably been, they'll be in pristine quality. They've been looking after them, waiting for the reformation. Steve, yeah, yeah. it's been lovely chatting to you, mate. Um, all the best with the, uh, with, with the, the jig and getting back out there on the road. I, I think you're gonna have a lot of fun and I think you're gonna keep a lot of people, Wow, I need fans have been waiting and waiting and waiting. Finally gonna get their chance to, uh, to see you guys performing again. Mate, all the best. We should mention too that 
We should mention that Steve has been on a satellite phone, and yes. that could be the noise you hear in the background. Yes, I'd say so. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, and, and hopefully uh, you can come to the, one of the gigs in Absolutely. Sydney. Absolutely. Julian and I will be there with our T-shirts. Don't worry about that. <laughs> we'll make sure that we, we meet up and we can chat and stuff and hang. That'd be great. Yeah. So this is uh, the Giblets Gazette. Of course, you can hear us on Spotify, TuneIn, uh, iHeartRadio, Player FM, uh, Zencast, anywhere you can find good, um, good podcasts, you can find us there. You can contact us via email at giblettsgazette at outlook.com. We thank Steve for being a guest today. Thank you, Julian.